Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. Usually on this podcast we talk about the history of shady, controversial or villainous characters from New Zealand history. This week though we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at the history of a really bad idea. In our very first episode about Alice Parkinson we talked a little bit about eugenics. One of the characters in that story was Robert Stout, the head of New Zealand's Supreme Court at the time. He was also twice elected Premier, the equivalent of being the Prime Minister. And, as we said, he was a eugenicist. Stout comes across as a real villain in Alice's story, an out-of-touch elitist. But there are some things about Stout we didn't have time to mention. We didn't mention he was an ardent land reformer. He argued land should be redistributed by the state to fight poverty. We didn't mention that in 1878, Robert Stout introduced the Electoral Bill, which made women ratepayers eligible to vote and to stand for Parliament. We didn't mention that he founded Victoria University. Its main history building is still called the Stout Research Centre. Stout's one of the great progressive figures of his time, but still a eugenicist. And he wasn't alone. The first person to be killed by the state, by the Nazis, was a father who had a disabled baby who went to the state and said, I've got this disabled baby that I don't think should live. Can the state kill this baby? And the state, whoever it was, you know, Hitler's doctor, they found it was actually very easy. And that was the beginning. A few more disabled children, disabled adults, and then the other groups, including Jews. And Jews right way through New Zealand. Jews was also another very, you know, a very seen as a very other group as well, right through. Hilary Stace is a historian and disability researcher with a keen interest in eugenics, or maybe it'd be better to say she has a keen interest in making sure we don't repeat the eugenic mistakes of the past. Of course, New Zealand never had a eugenics programme anywhere near as large and horrific as Nazi Germany, but there are little tendrils of eugenics which appear all through New Zealand history in some pretty uncomfortable places. The National Council of Women, the Plunkett Society, Federated Farmers, the Women's Temperance Union. These are all organisations which at some stage either promoted some form of eugenics or had leaders which did. This is all the beginning of the century and New Zealand was still quite new and there was quite a lot of immigration coming in and people were thinking, how can we have this wonderful ideal society? So they really were quite keen on keeping it, you know, keeping it nice. And When you think you're starting up a new society... And the new society is created by a small elite. And that's what eugenics is. It's a profound elitism described by one group of people against another. And it doesn't matter who that other group is. It's just that they're other. Whoever on the day that you don't like. There's a great phrase which the history podcaster Dan Carlin used to describe ideas like eugenics. An intellectual contagion. Just to make sure we're on the same page here, eugenics is the belief that things like poverty, crime and alcoholism have genetic causes and that those things can be bred out of society by removing undesirable people from the gene pool. 
If you want to find patient zero for this infectious idea, well, you've got to go to Charles Darwin. He gave a name to the science of it. But he was only talking about you know, animals and plants. He wasn't talking about humans. But it sort of gave the go-ahead, as it were, or justification for people who automatically thought they were superior beings anyway, which the British did. It provided this really good explanation as why they had power and other people didn't. It's interesting when you think of, like, how appealing this idea would have been because you think of, like, you know, your average British person at this period in history, they look around and what they see is white people taking over the entire world. And the great thing about sort of adding Darwin's ideas of fitness into this is that it suddenly all becomes the right, you know, the way of things. It's, It's natural. But it also explained that it could be done actively. You could actively do this breeding. You could encourage the the fittest. And fit was a very, very powerful word. The survival of the fittest that Darwin had, you know, talked about quite generally became literally, we are the fit. And, you know, the unfit don't have any rights, they don't have any value. To its advocates, eugenics was heroic. Pretty much every problem society faced could be fixed by breeding it out of the gene pool. And they write about it with an almost evangelical zeal. The time has come when every civilised state must say to the degenerate, I have tried punishing, curing, reforming you, and I have failed. You are incurable, a degenerate, a being unfit for social life. Henceforth, I shall care for you. I will feed and clothe you and give you a reasonably comfortable life. In return, you will do the work I set for you, and you will abstain from interference with your neighbour to his detriment. And one other thing that you will abstain from, you'll no longer procreate your kind. You must be the last among your feeble and degenerate family. Those are the words of Duncan McGregor, one of the first generation of New Zealand eugenicists. Duncan McGregor was particularly important. He was at the University of Otago, and he was apparently a very charismatic lecturer, and he just became a complete... Um, he was obsessed. He was, he was obsessed with these ideas and applying them to humans, basically. But he was a very charismatic speaker at the university and in public. And so he was teaching the next generation. And so this next generation of influential New Zealanders, they became the judges, the lawyers, the academics, the teachers, the intellectual class. So by the turn of the century, that philosophy was really well entrenched. If we're sticking with this metaphor of eugenics as an intellectual contagion and the British eugenicists were stage one of an epidemic, then McGregor was the carrier who infects a whole generation of powerful New Zealanders with this ideological virus. The second generation sets up eugenic societies, basically lobby groups which gave public lectures and presentations to health and educational authorities. And why wouldn't you believe in eugenics? Some of the greatest figures of the 19th and 20th century were on your side. U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. Society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce their kind. It is really extraordinary that our people refuse to apply to human beings such elementary knowledge as every successful farmer is obliged to apply to his own stock. Helen Keller, the first deaf and blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts. 
Our puny sentimentalism has caused us to forget that a human life is sacred only when it may be of some use to itself and to the world. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, the man who led the fight against Nazi Germany. They are natural and increasingly rapid growth of the feeble-minded and insane classes, coupled as it is with a steady restriction among all the thrifty, energetic and superior stocks, constitutes a national and race danger, which it, it is impossible to exaggerate. And of course, New Zealand Prime Minister Bill Massey. New Zealanders are probably the purest Anglo-Saxon population in the British Empire. Nature intended New Zealand to be a white man's country, and it must be kept as such. So if you think, like these people, that eugenics is a good idea, what are you going to do about it? There was one side which was very keen on war and thought that we've got to you know, breed these soldiers for the empire and a war would be good, we've got to get another war and we're going to wipe out another lot of people because they were the, you know, that's one way we can quickly hurry, we can hurry up the survival of the fittest. The weak ones all get killed off in war and that's a good thing. So there was that, that side happening. But war had its own problems for New Zealand eugenicists. What with all the machine guns and artillery involved in early 20th century war, your best and brightest died just as quickly as the unfit and unworthy. So why not come at the problem from the other end and try boosting the birth rates of your good upstanding, sober, working class men and women? So you'd have um, big hospital blocks called St Helens Hospitals where there was good care for mothers and when I was young they were still there and mothers stayed there for two weeks after having you know so the whole thing was you you know you encouraged childbirth you made it as healthy as possible other obstetricians came along who developed those ideas let's give lots of um anaesthetics so childbirth is nicer you know so there was a whole lot of ideas about making childbirth better so there was all this thing of building up the desirable the good working class Stock. And if young men and women wanted to mess around a bit with the undesirable classes before settling down to breed for king and country, well, there were ways to deal with that. The w- woman like Mari Stopes, who was advocating birth control and was seen as a scandalous woman, but they were very much into their eugenics. Their idea of eugenics was that women should be free to choose the fittest men that they can, you know. So their idea was, you know, they went in and chose the most virile men and that was another way of building up the, the stock and those, those good genes would then, you know, you'd develop. Now neither I nor Hilary Stace is suggesting that making childbirth safer or giving women access to contraceptives were bad things or that they were done for solely eugenic reasons. But there's no escaping that all these progressive causes have those little tendrils of eugenics in them. Truby King is a classic example, the founder of the Plunkett Society. In the 30 years after Plunkett was set up in 1907, the infant mortality rate fell by more than 60%. That figure isn't totally down to Plunkett, but there's no doubt it did some really good things, particularly with its emphasis on the importance of hygiene. But Truby King, again, was a eugenicist. Probably the worst example of this was his relationship with a man called Lionel Terry, a horrific racist who had written a manifesto called The Shadow, which I've read so you don't have to. The morals, methods of living, religious beliefs and general customs of the black and coloured races are totally strange and in many cases revolting to the white race. And therefore alien immigration into British possessions has a tendency to produce degenerate habits 
and to lower the moral standard amongst their white inhabitants. Those words would be bad enough, but Lionel Terry went on to murder an elderly Chinese man in Auckland in 1907. He had this to say when he turned himself into the police. I have come to tell you that I am the man who shot the Chinaman in the Chinese quarters of the city last evening. I take an interest in alien immigration, and I took this means of bringing it under the public notice. And then for that he was judged to be insane, so he was sent down to Seacliff, which happened to be where Truby King was in charge. And Truby King thought he was this amazing, he talks about him being this amazing specimen of manhood. And so uh, there's Doris Gordon, who was a doctor training. She said that Truby King used to bring out Lionel Terry to show the medical students what a wonderful specimen of, of, of manhood is Lionel Terry, and he was this you know, tall, fit man. So it was a pity that actually he'd killed somebody, but you know, he'd killed somebody who he was doing what, you know, he was doing something that was helping us, really. Asylums weren't just for keeping murderous racists like Terry locked up. They were key pillars of the eugenics movement, places where the unfit could be separated from the fit and prevented from passing on their defective genes. And the definition of who was unfit could be incredibly broad. Alcoholics, children with intellectual disabilities, elderly people with dementia, they all got locked up. Put you to a hospital, you can see pictures of it. By the end of the century, it was this huge, huge mass of buildings a whole working farm, hundreds and hundreds of people living there, children who had intellectual disability, people who had dementia, people who had had any sort of psychosis or breakdown or anything, and they were in these huge asylums, just people who were other. Eugenicists were also very keen on creating systems of classification for the unfit. For them, words like moron, idiot, stupid, feeble-minded... They all had very specific meanings, and not just for the health system, but in education too. Those educationists were looking at how they could classify different levels of children to send them to different places. So there would be schools and industrial farms and a whole lot of different places that these children would be classified and sent away to with the idea that they were segregated from society so they couldn't breed. And this was all... Not only mandated, but it was virtually, you had to do it. (laughs) After the First World War, the eugenics movement got even more official government support. A lot of soldiers who went overseas came back with sexually transmitted diseases. And at the time, it was believed those diseases could cause birth defects and even moral deficiency for those men's children. So they had this big committee of inquiry into venereal disease in the 1920s. And then then the next one... Uh, in 1925 was a committee of inquiry into mental defectives and sexual offenders. So there was this automatic assumption that mental defectives, sort of a catch-all, and sexual offending went together automatically. As part of this inquiry, the head of New Zealand's health department, Dr Theodore Gray, went on a tour of 13 different countries to look at the eugenic systems which had been put in place overseas. He presented a report to Parliament on his findings and said this to local newspapers. The most important preliminary necessity in any register for the cure of feeble-minded persons is the taking of a census and the compiling of a register. I am of the opinion that this duty should be carried out by a central coordinating and registering authority, a eugenics board. The main objects of social control are, one, to discourage and prevent the procreation of the unfit, two, 
to render known defectives as socially adequate as possible. As you'd imagine, that caused some alarm from the general public. One woman wrote this poem about Dr Theodore Gray. Oh, mother, save me from Dr. Gray, cause teacher says he's coming today, and if I'm stupid, he'll take me away. Oh, mummy, save me from Dr. Gray. I cannot save you, my little child. His mummy said her eyes were wild. You belong to this state. You're no longer my child. But oh, my darling, don't stupid be, or he'll say we've tainted heredity and must be eradicated, you and me. There was a furious debate in Parliament over the introduction of an official eugenics board. It went all through the night. But after 16 hours, at 10 o'clock in the morning on September 26, 1928, the Mental Defectives Act passes, and an official eugenics board was established. As a compromise to get the bill through, the government dropped some of the more controversial elements, including legalising involuntary sterilisation. But that didn't stop the eugenicists. We never had sterilisation legalised like they did in the United States. But of course it happened. I mean, if you talk to, well, any of the histories of people who actually were sent to any of those institutions, it was just routine. It's very hard to prove. I think the sort of thing was if if people went in for any sort of operation... For anything, you know, while they're in, a, in an institution, I think probably sterilisation would have been just part of the routine. So you go and get your appendix out? Uh, that was the rumours, yes. Um, I mean, th- when you have the eugenic mindset, people, like, they're not seen as fully human. You know, it's fine that you lock them up, like the woman at Seacliff, who's, um, you know, once they died, their bodies just went to the medical school because they didn't weren't seen as people with agency who needed to consent to that. Because sterilisation was done under the radar, there were no official reports, which means it's difficult to get hard numbers on how many people were sterilised or why. But historians have gathered anecdotal stories from former patients and staff who said it happened. Some said that in the 1980s, when the big mental health institutions were being closed, female patients were offered a procedure they were told would stop their periods. They weren't told it would also make them sterile. The establishment of an official eugenics board is the high watermark for eugenics in New Zealand. But the board's never really able to fulfil the dream of engineering a perfect society. That's partly because there were some staunch opponents to eugenics, particularly in the Catholic Church. One of the most notable was Suzanne O'Bear, Mother O'Bear, who was the person who established the Homes of Compassion in New Zealand. And she herself, she was a French nun. She did have an experience of physical disability. She welcomed everybody. And so she was one of the few people who took in disabled children, abandoned children uh, at her Homes of Compassion, and even adults. So she was one of the few. And she had quite a battle, I think, because... She had to raise funds to keep her work going and she was doing something that was definitely against the mainstream. And there were a few others. Peter Fraser, as who would her be Prime Minister from 1940, he, and his wife Janet Fraser, uh, I think they were quite suspicious of a lot of those the ideas. Because you can imagine some of those eugenists people were quite obsessive, <laughs> dominating, and I think they were probably a lot of them were probably quite unpleasant people. But, you know, there were people who who could see that that was a dangerous, that was going down a dangerous track. And in the 1940s, the world got a big wake-up call about just how dangerous of a track eugenics was. 
was the ultimate ex- expression of here you're going to do natural selection, you've got to give it a push. Well, the Nazis did give it a push. <laughs> like we think 200,000 people, at least disabled people, adults and children were killed and yet they're not even in the statistics you only hear about the the Jews which was you know terrible enough millions of them but it was too because it was so horrific there was of course a big backlash and the eugenic ideas didn't go away by any means but they weren't popular they weren't publicly popular anymore because if you started talking about eugenics people just would back off you wouldn't get any funding research funding and you know you just one of those things you didn't talk about But it probably is something we should talk about, because eugenics didn't die out after the Holocaust. In fact, some people would argue it's still with us today. Sweden was still practising eugenics sterilisation on a large scale up until the 1970s, and just recently in New Zealand there was a huge controversy when the government proposed funding long-term contraceptives for beneficiaries. And this question is getting even more pointed today, given the huge advances we're making in genetic testing and genetic engineering. Those issues are going to be harder and harder to make. And, and my area is autism, and I'm so pleased that there's no... Actually, there's no autism gene, but there's enough people fi- trying to find it. Once there is the autism gene, what are people going to do? And when you think that most of the inventions in the world come from people with autism, you know, I would hope people just embrace diversity and are supported for that diversity. And before you think this is a question you can leave for some time in the future, let me point out that right now in Iceland, a new non-invasive pregnancy test has led to 100% of Down syndrome pregnancies being terminated. In a few more years, we might be able to determine things like hair colour, physical appearance, even sexual orientation very early in pregnancy. What decisions do we make then? Better get thinking. Special thanks to Hilary Stace. I know I say this every week, but if you like this podcast, please take the time to rate it and share it with your mates. Also check out RNZ's other podcasts. You can find them on the series page at our website, rnz.co.nz. Next week, we'll look at the worst kind of villain ever seen in New Zealand history, an Auckland property speculator. They're more interested in obtaining access to the lands in the Waikato. At various points, there are opportunities to bring that war to an earlier end. But ministers are... very, very keen to go even further south, so they're advocating an extension of military activity. Black Sheep was written and presented by me, William Ray, edited by Phil Benge, the executive producer is Tim Watkin, our voice actors were James Kane, Duncan Smith, Adam McCauley, Megan Whelan and Liz Barnash. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.